Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, Alexa, tell me the name of another artificial intelligence technology besides you for the smart home. Josh AI, you got it. And we talked to the CEO of the company behind Josh AI on today's smart home show. Hey everyone, this is Mike Wolf. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. Today's guest is Alex Capasolatro, the CEO of JSTAR, the company behind Josh, the AI and natural language processing virtual assistant for the smart home, for the Cedia crowd. They're essentially creating a high-end AI and virtual assistant technology that helps you interface with your smart home. And uh, they start at a higher price point than what you can get at your typical store, but they're really targeting those those customers that want an installer, an integrator, uh, and they essentially want to replace the control floors of the world. It's an interesting conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. If you want to listen to more smart home shows, you know what to do. Just look for us in your favorite podcast app. You can find us at technology.fm or just go to thesmarthomeshow.com. That'll take you there as well. I also have some exciting news. For those of you who are into the Smart Kitchen, we just announced the new date for the Smart Kitchen Summit 2016 October 5th and 6th in Seattle on the waterfront. Yes, folks, uh, we're moving to the waterfront. We're getting fancy. I can't wait. Uh, this is going to be so much fun this year. So just go to smartkitchensummit.com. If you want to listen to us podcast about the Smart Kitchen, you can get the Smart Kitchen show. Uh, you can actually find that on iTunes. You go to, you can go to smartkitchensummit.com backslash show or go to technology.fm. It's there as well. But check it out. If you're into the Smart Kitchen uh, and you want to come to the, the Seattle and, and talk to some of the smartest people in the whole world that are looking at this fusion of kitchen and technology, uh, this is the event to go to. We're so excited, folks. Check it out. That's it for now. Thank you for listening to the Smart Home Show. Here's my conversation with Alex Capasolatro. Hey, well, Alex, we connected at some point, and I can't remember how, although I think you used to run a social network or still do called At The Pool, and uh I used to get emails about that. So maybe that's how it happened. Yeah, it's funny. I was looking on LinkedIn and we connected back in 2012, but I don't think we ever exchanged any uh, any messages, which is funny. Um, but I, I actually sold that company just about a year ago, so I'm no longer working on that. Okay. And you are working for uh, JSTAR, I think the company name is. The product's called Josh, and I'll kind of butcher this, but it's a basically AI meets smart home, I guess the elevator pitches, and you're going to do a much better job talking about it and explain what it is. But let me introduce you formally to, to the listeners. You're Alex Capasolatro. You, you coach me on how you say your name. I think I did it okay there. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and you are the CEO of JSTAR, yep, which, which makes which makes Josh. So why don't you tell everyone what JSTAR is and then, uh, and then quickly what Josh is? Sure. So just about a year ago, we started this company, my co-founder, Tim Gill, and myself. And basically, JSTAR is built on a proprietary natural language processing engine and the idea is to connect natural input, natural language with the Internet of Things, with devices around us. And we're starting with a product called Josh, which is all about bringing essentially AI and natural voice into the home. 
So if you think a little bit about what the Amazon Echo is doing, except much more in terms of integration with multiple devices throughout the house and just giving a, a true home automation experience for high-end homes. Well, my understanding is that Tim actually had been experimenting with AI in the home, and this started as a pet project of his. Is that, is that right? Uh, to a certain extent. So my background, at least over the last five years, has been really leading product at beautiful user experience apps, social apps, consumer apps. Um, while Tim, on the other side, is really a hardcore engineer, you know, his stuff arguably doesn't look that pretty to the eye, but the code is just elegant. He writes amazing software. And so he's been working on the underlying natural language processing technology for probably three years now. It started off as a chatbot. The idea was just, you know, social conversations, and naturally it evolved to include APIs. So weather APIs, location APIs, stuff like that. And the natural extension was, well, Maybe this can control my Tesla, maybe control my lights. And so when we started working together, he had sort of a, a very crude chatbot that underlying the, the interface was this amazing software technology. And we decided, let's, let's productize this. Let's make this into something that people want. And for those listeners who don't know who your CTO is, your co-founder, Tim Gill, he actually has a pretty kind of important place in, in software history. He was one of the guys at the beginning of the desktop publishing revolution. He founded Quark. Exactly. He did very well financially, and it was just a, a very important company for the time. It was started, I think, in the mid to early 80s, really took off in the 90s, and just around 2000 is when he left doing that to start a foundation with, I think, about half a billion dollars. So he's, uh, he's done quite well, and since then, he's just been basically retired and building cool things. So... If you think about the um, the quintessential billionaire who's trying to make a smart home, that's kind of the you know the start of this project. Well, it's funny because another billionaire, I think we've all heard of, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, made it his New Year's resolution to say, "Hey, I want to see how AI can be overlaid and integrated into my home." When you saw his New Year's resolution, did you think, "Hey, well, Tim is already doing that"? Another another billionaire. <laughs> Yeah, so it, a couple things. My initial thought was we've, you know, we've got the jump on him by almost a year. Um, the second thing, though, is one thing I've learned doing this is it's actually not that hard to build a personal smart home. If you're technical, if you like to just code and hack, you can do a lot of cool things in your home. What's really hard is building a product that can just plug and play for any consumer. And so what I love is that the more that he does, the more that he creates sort of for himself and then talks about the more that other people are going to say, I want that too, but they're not going to be able to get it from him because what he's doing is really a personal project. And so for us, we're trying to create this more as a, you know, a, a project that people could purchase, people could buy. As a consumer, I also thought a lot about what the next interface would be to all the things in our lives. And, and you know, I feel like in the last 10 years, the touchscreen has been kind of the, the major innovation we've all kind of been astounded by and, and it's become commonplace. But then as we started, as I started, you know, five, six years ago to look at what would be next, you know, it was things like gesture recognition. There were things like obviously voice recognition and natural language processing. And then even going so far as actually looking at kind of neuro connections and kind of, you know, things just anticipating uh, what we would be doing. So maybe talk about it as an natural language processing as an interface to the home. I think it's probably what's going to be went out as in terms of a next generation because it feels like to me gesture recognition is really kind of clunky today and there's so many ways things could go wrong for example the nest protect fire uh, smoke alarm like that was a debacle right i feel like that was like a gesture recognition debacle and but and, and language recognition is just so much further along 
Um, is that what you're thinking as well compared, you know, when you compare these different interfaces? Yeah. So it, it's funny. I'll, I'll tell you a personal story that I just heard um, this past weekend. My, my dad does not use computers at all. He just, he's intimidated by it. He's turning 75 this year. He just, he never really wanted to, to try. Meanwhile, my mom is sort of the technology person in the home. And so I asked my parents, I said, after, you know, all these years of computers getting better, like, dad, are you still, are you still not using computers? Have you thought about it? And my mom told me the story. She said, when, um, when we had, I don't know if it was the first or second computer in the home, but there was a time when my dad needed to try to do something. She was out of the house. He called her up. And so she said, well, just go on the computer. I'll walk you through it. So the first thing she says is, all right, double, I think, what was it exactly? She goes, all right, take the mouse and double click Internet Explorer or whatever the program happened to be. And next thing you hear is the mouse hitting glass, sort of a, <laughs> and she just gave up then. Are you and sure? The, the thing that's so, so interesting about this is the way that interfaces evolve for me when I think about it, they're just making things more natural. For him, it was natural to just try to physically touch the, the button, which is what touch interfaces do now. And so when I think about where we're going next, for me, it's looking at my dad and it's saying, it's easy for him to be on a couch and say to my mom, to my mom you know, hey, can you make it warmer in here? Can you turn the music off? Can you make sure the door's locked? And, you know, it, it's very natural. It's very intuitive. That's how we look at Josh. We think we should be like that other person that is happy to do whatever you ask. And you can do it from the couch. You can do it, you know, from the phone. You can do it from, you know, frankly, anywhere in or out of the house that you would like. And so voice is crucial to that. But there are times where you don't want to use voice. There are times where it's loud. You have a party. Maybe you're out in public. And so we still have a traditional UI that we think is really important. And gesture is one of these things that we're eyeing really closely, we're excited about. But as you say, it's just, it's not there yet. No one, no one's really figured out a way to make it work in, a, in an easy and seamless way. Uh, that being said, what Nest has done where it's not quite gesture, but you sort of wave in front to wake it up and then you turn yeah, an easy yeah. dial to change, that I think is going to make a lot of sense for, for actual hardware devices in the next 12 to 18 months. So what we're trying to figure out, the first version of Josh is really user-based. So my phone's right. logged in as me. The phone knows yep. me and sort of what I do. Your phone, you're logged in as yourself. It has some information on you. When you have an always listening device, though, you kind of lose that because it's hard to know if, if someone just speaks, you know, put my favorite music on. We don't really know whose music it is. So speech recognition, I think, is going to get better, and that's going to become possible. But the other thing is location recognition. So kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with gesture. I should be able to say, turn these lights off, turn that light on, turn this TV off. And whether that's gesture or whether it's using, you know, some type of BLE technology to mm -hmm. determine what I'm closest to, we're, we're excited about experimenting in that realm just because, again, it's, it's very natural for me to say, can you turn that off? Yeah. And a computer doesn't know what that is unless it has context. Well, you bring up an interesting point. So it sounds like when you start to think about how you guys are implementing this, it's an always it's it's a personal listening device, and by that I get a smartphone versus uh, an always listening device, which I think maybe you're contrasting with the Echo. Um, maybe tell me if I'm wrong there. Uh, so one of the things I think ultimately would be interesting is the contextual understanding of of devices recognizing who's in a room. Um, and it sounds like your approach is to assign it by device. At some point, though, do the devices, like an always listening device, know who the voice is? Or maybe if there's a camera, they know who the face is. And then that context then provides all it needs to then give very tailored 
um, reactions to the command? I firmly believe and, and suspect that that is going to be the future. I think it's going to take some time to get there. You know, the first thing is, in my home, I have a couple inside-facing cameras, so I know what's going on in the kitchen, the living room. But most of the customers we speak with really don't look at cameras that way. They look at cameras as security for the outside of the home. And so facial recognition is something that, frankly, the technology is there. There's some great companies that are coming out with products that make this possible. But you need to have inward-facing cameras. And I think it's going to take time to get people around that sort of big brother fear, that fear that they're always being watched, they're always being heard. Yeah, I think there's a tension right now with this idea of cameras inward and privacy. There's kind of this creep cam meme that's kind of going around. And people are much more comfortable with the outward-facing one. But yeah, you're right. So with that in mind, so that's like a that's like a psychology issue and like a personal uh, uh, a social engineering thing versus a technology engineering issue. Exactly, and I, I see them going hand in hand. The, the reality is, and this is kind of interesting, this space is moving so fast. A year ago, when we were starting the company, we had a lot of people saying, "Why would I want to control?" the devices in my home from a from a smartphone, which, you know, in some aspects, you've had that capability for a while if you spent the money. Um, but the mindset was very much, why would I ever want that? And now partially based on Echo and based on HomeKit, based on Google and Nest and everything else that's going on, people are no longer questioning, why would I want that? They're more questioning, well, do I buy this product or that one? And so I, I see the technology and the social dynamics really evolving together. The one advantage I think an always listening device has is I don't always have my smartphone. So are you trying to kind of anticipate every kind of preference that a user may have? Or are you, would you, are you trying to maybe, I think force is a little strong, but say, hey, to use our system, you need your phone with you all the time. Are you going to be open to both types of mindsets? Oh, absolutely. Our feeling is voice is a good option some of the time. And, and frankly, a lot of the time, depending on what your, your use cases are, um, but it's not always the right interface, and the same with your phone. So a lot of smart homes today are built around these tablets that are either in the kitchen or on a wall, maybe in the entryway. And so our sort of early productized uh, sort of concepts are the smartphone we feel is really important, primarily because, and people forget this, half the use case for a smart home is when you're not at home. You want to make sure that you turn the lights off. You want to maybe get the temperature prep before you get there. And so that needs to be on you. That needs to be a mobile device. Um, but when you are home, frankly, you want to just put your phone in its charger and forget about it. So what we're building around is a tablet form that will have an always listening device capability. We're still very torn because some people really want it and some people really don't want it from a security perspective. And, you know, again, that concept of this device is listening to my conversations. It's not a rational fear because it's really not listening in theory, not in theory, but in practice. But what we're finding is for people who really want that, we're, we're making that an option. And so our, our main feeling is at the macro scale, Josh should allow you to connect with any device from any device. We don't really care what the form factor is. Of course, in getting there as a startup, we have to go through you know, what's realistic in the early days. But that concept of requiring the phone is certainly not what we're thinking. That privacy issue you mentioned, I feel like there's a couple – bad actors in the in the marketplace and by that I don't mean they're terrible companies or people it's just like they're they're doing things that are making everyone everyone's lives harder and you know Samsung's a good example with their their TVs and if you read the fine print on the Samsung TVs they're listening to your conversations for whatever reason maybe for advertising or kind of just trying to build a database and that's just really terrible for companies like you or or others who 
want people to embrace natural language, but don't want their stuff being then sucked into some sort of like marketing database engine to process. It's it's really tricky. When you look at what people are actually allowing companies to do, everyone who has Google Now or Siri engaged, which most people with smartphones do, they've already given up that access. They basically have said, you know, it's okay for my phone to listen to everything I'm doing and to record it and to use it for whatever purposes they want. The thing is most people don't realize it because it's bundled in with all this other stuff. And so there's recently been a policy change in Europe that basically says you can do that. If you do that, it needs to be very explicitly stated because most people who don't realize it's going on, like that, that tends to be the problem. What, what we're really sort of thinking about is will there come a point where people just say, look, all of my internet usage, all of these cameras, all of these, this, these microphones, they're basically always on and I understand that and I accept it and I'm not going to care. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but it seems like most millennials have that mindset. You know, the younger the person, the more they suspect that everything's being watched anyway, so they basically don't care. Um, if that is the case, then it basically becomes a non-issue. And, you know, for us, we don't have to figure out how we navigate the landscape. But in the meantime, we have to deal with the fact that, frankly, a lot of people, 40, 50, 60, which are customers of high-end homes, the people that we're selling to, they have these fears, they're real fears. Um, and when we're selling into a large, expensive home, we might be selling to a politician, an athlete, an actor, a business person, people who have actual secrets that they don't want getting out. So it's, um, it's interesting because depending on the you know, economic background, the age background, the you know, demographic background of, of the customer, it's more or less of an issue depending on yeah. the conversation. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'd be – over the long span of time, I'd be interested to see how this evolves. I can't figure out if it's you know millennials just grew up with it so they're okay with it or when they get serious jobs where they have secrets and kids – Maybe they'll care. You know what I mean? Like, is it a thing, just a stage of life thing, or is it truly a demographic thing? Yeah, and right now, all I can say is our customers are fairly split. Some love the idea of an always listening device, and some will never have it in their home. So let's step back and look at what you guys are doing. You're creating an interface layer for smart home, and this is something that allows you, the user of your technology, to control the devices in their home. So there's a fair degree of integration with systems like Maybe it's a control four system or like a really high end, you know, system like Crestron, or you're doing just integration with all the kind of the, the hero point products, be it uh, like a Nest or a August Smartlock. So talk about that side. Are you, are you building like a, 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 are you doing like a ton of work with API, different product APIs to kind of make sure this works with them? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting, but from a business case, if you're building a controller on top of one of those existing integrators, a control four or a Crestron, you're building a really bad business. You have a lot of leverage that you've given up. You have really no pricing power anymore. And every device that's coming out, they're all IP-enabled right now. And so what we find is going direct to the device, the Nest, the Lutron, the Sonos, these devices that have APIs, it, it's both the best in terms of give, giving us direct access to the devices and not relying on, on one of the big companies, but also it seems to be the direction that almost all of the hardware is going. And so right now what we're dealing with is a, a split between any new home that's getting built, people that are you know a little more tech savvy. It gives us great control. But we also have quite a few customers. Look, I've got a $5 million home. I spent quarter million dollars on a Control 4 system. It technically does all this great stuff, but I hate the interface. Can I just have Josh control it? And for something like that, we basically say, 
I understand the use case. It makes sense. I want to give this person a better experience. But for a small startup, is that really the best place for us to focus? And we're still figuring that out. So right now, most of our integrations are directly with individual devices. Um, that being said, we're adding and evolving that all the time. It's at least half of the engineering work that we do is device integration. Um, so that's going to continue to evolve. So if I were to kind of play this forward and think about what you would be, could you essentially be a a replacement to make everything work together in, in lieu of like a Crestron or Control 4, like one of these kind of integrator slash software plays? I mean, because, you know, at some level, Control 4 is also a software uh, package and framework that controls a bunch of devices. Are you Do you essentially see yourself replacing that? Or is it just like a model or a market you don't want to be involved in? Uh, so I would argue in the next 18 to 24 months, if we're not replacing those companies, we've done something wrong. It's interesting, but most of the integrators we talk to and the homeowners that we speak with, they're really excited to move away from these sort of big, clunky systems that you put a lot of money into, and then a year later, it feels out of date. Our concept is we're not a hardware company. We're just building out the software. We want to integrate with everyone's hardware. And so what that means is as you decide that you're going to change out Nest for whatever's going to come after it, or you're going to put in a new speaker system or a new you know, Apple TV that comes out, we should just work with that because we're not reliant on this sort of older, clodgy system that has a lot of hard wiring. Um, in getting there, though, it's, it's going to take some time. So what's interesting is right now we're looking at the system, sort of the, the version one of the system, primarily as a way to control and monitor your home from anywhere in the world. So whether you're at home or away, I can turn on my music, I can turn off the lights, I can change the temperature, I can, and I can do it all with voice. That's, that's kind of phase one. Phase two, though, which we're building out now as well, is more about scenes and automations. So I'm tracking the weather, I'm tracking the time of day, I'm tracking which phones are actually in the home. And as a result, we can basically set up scenes that say, if everyone's out of the house, go into energy savings mode. If I come home and I want to say I've got a dinner party in an hour, let the house just get everything going. And then do things with geofencing and auto triggers. So that's kind of what happens after you've got full device control. You can start doing that kind of stuff, those scenes and those triggers. The third phase, though, which is a little more interesting, I think, in the long run, is applying the artificial intelligence we have towards pat pattern recognition, machine learning, and the idea of understanding what the people in the home actually do, what they like, what they're up to, so that we can make their lives easier and better. So, for example, if we see that Monday through Friday you have a habit of waking up around 7 o'clock, you turn on certain lights, maybe you put CNN on, we basically would determine that there's a pattern, ask the, the homeowner, hey, would you like us to automate this for you? And whether or not you want it to be an automatic trigger that just happens or a one-click button that you still want to trigger, but when you wake up, you say, okay, now go into my good morning mode, if you will. Those types of, of learnings and scenes and whatnot, that, that's sort of phase three that we're super excited about. Phase four is when it gets all about personalization. This is taking the AI to a level of can we do voice detection to know who's speaking, location detection, gesture detection. And basically, if you've seen the movie Her, the idea of being this sort of nebulous AI that really just interacts with the world around you in a very seamless way. You know, if you're wa walking towards a door, the idea is the door unlocks, the lights turn on, it sort of understands what to predict. And, and that's sort of where we're going. We're not going to be there in the next 12 months, but... I would say in the next couple of years, we're certainly moving in that direction. So phase four, 2018. <laughs> you, you haven't put it on a calendar yet? I, um, I'll do that right after this call. <laughs> um, 
you know, is what's interesting to me about creating this, this engine you're doing is there's, it's centered around the home. Uh, I think it's kind of the, kind of the place where it's going to be employed, but it goes much beyond smart home because I think it's a foundation for, um, use, use cases, right? And this is the analyst in me speaking is if I were writing a report, like I'd say, okay, well, there's a huge opportunity for, uh, you know, elder care. And, you know, you talked about your dad and, and like he may just interface with things better if he could talk to things or maybe children who can, you know, we can just kind of know this as a child and, and react with him better. Or so I just feel like, um, it's smart of you guys to focus in on the home, but it's more than just interfacing with like a nest. I feel like there's a lot of different kind of, uh, fairly robust services built around use cases that could be deployed over time using this technology. If, if you guys get it right. Absolutely. We're even looking into things like, you know, homes where there are people who have disabilities, whether it's, you know, in a wheelchair. So having access to physically controlling the switches would be a lot easier with a tablet in your lap or cases where someone is, you know, hearing impaired or visually impaired. And this, this smart technology, we kind of take it for granted as someone with all of our senses and, and all of our health. But there are a lot of people who this is the difference between, you know, spending 10 minutes to turn a light on versus just having it work. So let's get specific on what Josh is from a, just a product. If I'm a consumer, I sign up on your, cause I went to your website. I see like you guys have a certain amount of people that can sign up for the product. What am I getting it from what I've read? I, I think you're actually putting a server in my house. It's, it's not necessarily kind of living in the cloud um, or maybe it is both in both places. What is the product I'm getting? And, and can you tell us about any of the costs or what it would cost us? Yeah, so the, the primary engine behind Josh, where all the natural language, pro, natural language processing takes place and all the device control takes place, that's on a, a local server that's actually in the home. That's, if you will, the hub. Um, that's super important for a couple reasons. You know, one, if your Wi-Fi is down, you still have access to any of your local devices. Obviously, your cloud devices you won't have access to, um, but it gives you access to everything on the local network. It also dramatically increases the performance so if you're not having to go to the cloud for every interaction, which, frankly, you don't want to say turn on the lights and get a three-second delay, that's just, frankly, not, you know, not okay, um, the local system makes that so much better. And that, that server basically is auto um, – we, we can automatically upgrade it over the air. So think about the Tesla, the fact that if the hardware is in place, people are amazed that Tesla basically will just do a full update over the air. That, that's sort of how our system works. With that, we then connect into a local web browser, so you can go directly to the website from you know your home or anywhere out of the home to see the state of the, the house, to control whatever you want to control, to basically have all that access, um, but then also the app. So I would say we're putting most of our attention towards the iPhone and Android apps, sort of the, the, the mobile phone apps, because we think that's really the most important for the user. Um, but then there's also a tablet and unlike a lot of companies in this space, which really surprises me, um, it surprises me that they do this, we're not charging for our apps. The idea is if you buy the Josh system, you know, the app is included in that. And I say this because if you buy a $20,000 Lutron system, for a long time their app was $29 a piece. So five people in your family, it's, it's crazy that you all have to end up buying this. The idea for us is that you can put Josh on any Android device, any iOS device, or just go directly onto the web and then have control over the local system. We also do a fair amount of monitoring. And so we think going into the app and saying, turn on the lights on, having this control is, is great and it's part of the story. 
but we should also be able to alert you if there's a device that goes offline or if there's a certain trigger that you care about. It's gotten too hot or too cold or maybe there's, um, there's some motion in the driveway when you expect no one to be there. And so this sort of remote access, remote monitoring is something that we're doing as well. So when you're in the home, you connect directly to the local server. And when you're out of the home, you basically funnel through a cloud server that gets you to the local server. And that way you've got this remote access. Yeah, I think sometimes people who kind of conceive these business models where you're paying per app, like I feel like they're like they never actually really talk to consumers. They're just like accountants. Like <laughs> they're just like they, they need to get out there more is what I'm saying when they're before they think of these things. Um, talk about the pricing. So if I want to get the, the server, are you, do you guys have pricing now that you can share with us? Yeah, so basically we're targeting high-end homes, and the system right now is a $10,000 system. It's basically a one-time fee, flat fee. That includes everything we just discussed. And the idea, again, is that we're trying to go into these homes that are oftentimes five to 10,000 square feet. They have fairly complicated environments, you know, a couple hundred lights, you know, dozens of nests. You've got garage doors. You've got, you know, all sorts of things. And the idea is that we give direct and easy access over that. And the reason that we're pricing it in this place is, one, we do want to reduce the number of units that we can give a lot more attention to every customer. So if, if you're this year we're only delivering 100 units, for example, and what that means is every customer is getting a very personalized experience. We're making sure that you know, things are installed right, that they you know, have direct communication channel to us. Um, but what's interesting is a lot of these homes have already invested $100,000 to half a million dollars into their systems. It's, it's very common with Crestron and Control 4. And so we're really targeting those customers in the beginning, sort of the early adopters that are already you know, investing quite a bit. And the thought is down the road, we're going to look at really dropping the price and going more mass market. But right now, it really is a luxury product. And so we're keeping it you know, to a smaller number of units, higher price point, and being very hands-on. So that's a, that's a super high price, as you know. Um, and do you feel like it feels like that price ultimately kind of is going to put you in a almost trap you because like you cannot drop to like a hundred dollar price point at some point without your ten thousand dollar initial customers being very angry. So do you feel like you're essentially kind of limiting your market by start, starting off so high? No, it's it's a different model. So what's going on right now? You have two types of customers, many more than two, but sort of there are two extremes. The one extreme is the very wealthy customer who hires an integrator who basically is saying, all right, if you go with a Crestron system or a Control 4 system, it's going to take us you know, three months, maybe six months to get the whole system in place. Like I said, it's not uncommon to cost you $250,000, half a million dollars. I mean, these projects get very expensive very fast. And the idea is that the homeowner basically just closes their eyes, lets the integrator do their work, and then everything is sort of installed and they get told, okay, here's how it works. The other extreme of the market or are basically these, I, I would call it, we call them do-it-yourselfers, basically people who go to the Apple store, they buy some Philips Hue light bulbs, maybe they buy a Nest, maybe a drop cam, now a Nest cam, and they, they basically plug all this in, you know, a couple thousand dollars gets you all the equipment that you need. Um, you typically have a suite of different apps that control everything independently, and you've, you've basically done everything by yourself, so there's no integrator involved. What we find is that there's a very different product when you put something in a box and say to the homeowner, unpackage this and set it up yourself, versus when you go the integrator route and you say to the homeowner, basically just close your eyes, we're going to take care of everything, and you're going to be delighted by the experience. 
So it really is more of a service model. So right now with the higher price point, we're going after that sort of integrator service model where you're buying the whole package, the, the service, the support. When we move more mainstream or mass market, we drop the price. That's going to be you know, more analogous to when you go and you buy a drop cam. You basically don't have direct communication with the company. You have some support forums and hopefully other people have had the same issues you have, but you basically are on your own. And so we imagine that we're going to start with that service model and probably have both product lines going for some time, depending on how things are looking. Um, but it really is a different product. Yeah, I feel like there's an opportunity in the middle of those two where um, – and I think that's what the – like some companies are trying to figure out, like be it Sears or Lowe's or even like Amazon with their Amazon Home Services, like the big mass market middle that aren't DIY users but aren't like high-end homes – but you need a light touch. And I think maybe the service fighters are doing the best job right now with managed smart home, be it like an Xfinity home or even ADT, as clunky as those companies can seem, like they're actually racking up millions of subscribers at this point for the people who aren't DIYers but they aren't super high-end. Um, it would be interesting to see what you think of Amazon because I, I think I read this week that they're hiring 569 people. They have 569 job listings for the Echo. They're going to try and build that, kind of innovate more. So are you, you feel like you're in a race against time to, against what Amazon's trying to build with their, essentially their kind of home assistant? I really don't. You know, of course you can't predict exactly what a company's going to do, but I have quite a few friends at Amazon and I've chatted with them really from the very beginning of when they were just discussing the Echo. And the thing that's interesting is in the beginning, it was really a music player that had some cool functionality and you can order stuff. It was this, you know, sort of, box that that had some great voice capability but it was never pitched or never meant to be about the smart home in the beginning and what was interesting was between the media and the customers it became clear that people wanted to use it for home control and as a result they basically said okay let's try to give people what they want and you know every hardware company from nest to august to schlage you know they're reaching out to amazon because they're a huge name and and everything going on there and they're basically saying, how can I allow someone to unlock their door with the Echo or turn on the lights with the Echo? And what we find is that's a great solution for a smaller venue. But when you're talking about a 10,000-square-foot home, which, again, is really where we're starting, that, that product's just not going to get you there. You also need to be within a voice range of the actual box, where for us a big thing that, that we're excited about is the fact that it's completely mobile. You've got remote access. It's, it basically moves along with you. And so... We think the Echo, kind of like Siri, has some amazing capabilities in a confined environment and for a certain use case. But what's interesting is a lot of people I know who own the Echo, it, it basically is a glorified paperweight. Um, and I don't know if this stat is true. I need to relook. But I was told by people that you know, I, I trust their judgment that the first million that were sold, and I mean, it was amazing they sold a million, but the first million that were sold, half of them were returned. And so, again, I don't know if that stat's completely true. It's just what I heard. It seems, it seems like they have an identity crisis where unless they say we're going to be the smart home product, which so far they haven't said, consumers just kind of get confused about what to use and what to do with it. With us, though, one thing I just want to say is we love that it's showing people how amazing voice capabilities are because people have been burnt on Siri, burnt on what they've seen, and then they see the Echo and they say, wow, this thing actually it, it works really well. And for us, that's a huge selling point because it gives people confidence in voice. Yeah, I feel like the Echo from the beginning was a Trojan horse for Alexa. And I feel like you're you're competing with Alexa, not Echo. 
And so when I look at Alexa, Amazon has the Alexa fund. Alexa is going to be in a lot of different devices. I was just talking to a company uh, at CES where they're building like a, a, a smart speaker for the kitchen, like this thing that goes on your fridge. And they're, they're an Alexa fund company. Um, I'm talking to another, another company. They're looking at maybe integrating Alexa with wall art. So, I mean, if Alexa starts to get in everything, I don't think you're competing with Echo so much as Alexa. Um, I would argue our company, JSTAR, and Alexa would certainly be competitors at that point. But we're so focused right now on our initial product, Josh, which is, which is about home automation. And for Josh, this particular product to me, is it, it, it's not a place that I'm too concerned um, your, your point's very clear, though. Our long-term vision is to move away from just focusing on the home and to do more than just this, this smart home product. And at that point, we're competing with Google now. We're competing with where Siri's going. We're competing with Viv. You know, and, and certainly Alexa's in that, that range of products. The thing that I think people do wrong with, with artificial intelligence is they focus on the fact that it's capable of so many potential things And they try to create a product that can do so many things. I mean, that's basically what you're describing. And what I think the reality of where we are today is you need to focus on a very specific application and build a complete system for that. And so when it comes to the smart home, you need a visual UI interface, a response interface. You need to have the ability to use it remotely. And so, again, I'm I'm not concerned about the Echo in this space. But you're absolutely right. In terms of our company doing more than just smart home stuff, Alexa, as well as a couple others, are certainly in the space. How are you getting your initial customers? Because ten thousand for a startup is a hard sell. Um, I mean, I when I look at some of the other companies that come out of super high premium price points, um, Kaleidoscape is another one. Like they they were a media server company that had a, a wealthy founder, and I think they eventually did okay. But it just takes a while to get there. How are you guys finding your customer base? So one one thing I just uh, I want to clarify. Our price point is very middle market, if not low, when it comes to the high-end stuff. So we're basically saying you could spend a quarter million dollars on a Crestron system for a 4,000-square-foot home, or you can spend $10,000 with us. It, it really is a, an easy sell when you're talking to people at that level. And so at that level, almost every sale goes through integrators. They go through the people who are actually doing the installations, and those integrators are part of a community called Cedia. Cedia is sort of the, the one organization, if you will, that they all belong to. It's where a lot of knowledge gets shared. And we found the Cedia community is very welcoming, very warm to what we're doing. It's almost like they've been waiting for something new that's really geared towards their community and their right. consumer base. And by the way, there are over 18,000 people who attended their U.S. conference, 60,000 people attended their European conference, and each of those people, those are integrators with you know, dozens of customers. So it's a fairly vast market. And so we've actually been told almost unanimously is an easy sell if it works and does what we're saying. Because, again, they're used to telling their customers that the integration is going to be super expensive and not perform nearly as well. Yeah, we're pretty familiar with the Cedia market. I mean, we've we've done podcasts about Cedia. And I think that makes sense that you would – that would be your channel to market, particularly at that price point. And it is – if you're talking about it in a Cedia context, it's mid-market. But I I still think for a startup to find that audience is tough. So how are you – are you – you're – have you basically been approaching different big integrators to say, hey, would you try implementing our system? How are you finding your integrators? You know, it's the funniest thing. We're really big fans of building a great product before marketing it. Our product's not ready yet. We're not, we're not out there really pitching it yet. 
and yet there have been so many inbound requests. And part of it's people see the echo and they say, is there anything that we'll do this on a more full home basis? Um, but so what we've done from a strategy perspective is since founding the company, we've put out a blog post every week. And the blog post might be smart lighting solutions or camera solutions that you should know, or just thoughts about where the smart home is going in this coming year, sort of things about the industry, things that we think people who care about this space would, would find fascinating. And a lot of those blog posts, of course, feed people back to the website. People end up joining the mailing list. And so from that, we've amassed a pretty large mailing list. We then kicked off a beta program where we said, we're going to basically let people apply to be beta testers, get Josh for free for a 60-day period. And that's based on where they live, what size home they have, what devices they have, just to make sure that it's a good test ground for us. And we had an, an overwhelming number of people who subscribed for that. Again, it's just sort of this organic base of people who have found us and read the blog post and you know just sort of discovered us that way. But what's interesting is we have, I think last I checked, over 500 qualified beta testers on the list, and we're adding about five a month. So we have way more than we need to test at least with, and the idea is a lot of those are converting or will convert to customers. So it's, um, it's interesting, but our goal of hitting 100 sales this year is, is really a fairly conservative goal, and, and it's not, frankly, going to be that tough to reach. What's going to be harder is how do we scale to 1,000 or 10,000 homes? And that's where, at this point, I, th I think it really will get difficult. But for the first 100, I mean, between my network, Tim's network, and the inbound requests we've got, it's really been more focused on let's build the best product because we have people who already want it. Are you guys planning on showing at CDA this year? It's in the fall. It sounds like the timing might be good for you guys. What's interesting is a number of hardware manufacturers have reached out, whether they are TV companies, speaker companies, thermostat companies, who have said they'd love to have us in their booths so they can demo their product with voice. And we think we might take that approach. So rather than having our own booth, because frankly, you know, it's a fairly high expense and a fairly high amount of effort, and we're not really looking to move that many units, the idea of being in the booths with these other companies so, so they can have a better demonstration and also get us in front of their customers that seems to be the, the process that we're probably going to take, but we're still figuring it out. A little advice. I always tell people, don't get anything on the show for Just get a suite. Um, I, I'm not sure. Is it in Dallas this year? I, can't, I don't remember. I think it's Dallas I, last year. I think it's back in Dallas, though. Back, yeah, just get a suite and, and do invites to, to your suite to show it off rather than getting something on the show for. And that way you can do all the biz dev you, you need to do there. So, hey, but Alex, thanks for spending time with me today, man. This has been great talking about Josh. And maybe at some point we could do a podcast with Josh. Like Josh can actually answer our questions. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks a lot. Cool. Thanks so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to this week's Smart Home Show. Thank you, Alex, for participating. For those of you who listened all the way to the end, I have a special discount for you. Like I said, we're very excited to announce the new date for the Smart Kitchen Summit, October 5th and 6th this year in Seattle. Just go to smartkitchensummit.com, use the discount code SMARTHOME, to get 5% off. Again, if you're interested, if you want to come to the summit, mix and mingle with the leaders in the kitchen and tech space and the smart home space in the food tech space, buy a ticket. And uh, I'd love to see you up here. I'd love to hang with you. All right, folks. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>